Hi, my name is William Ryan Brown, and I'm a podcast editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast segment is titled Leadership and Public Policy. As we take the time to interview experienced public leaders and discuss their leadership styles, influences, and identify their leadership philosophies for leading and managing decisions in our complex world. Today's guest is Ms. Sarah Syndic, a Georgetown University Politics Spring 2021 Fellow. She most recently served as the Director of Public Affairs at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA, the newest agency in the federal government charged with defending the country's critical infrastructure from threats, both cyber and physical. Ms. Syndic has over 15 years experience in public affairs and media relations in the government to include serving as a former White House Director of Rapid Response in President George W. Bush's administration. She took the time to talk with us about leadership and her tips on being a passionate and enthusiastic leader. We hope you enjoy the interview. Good afternoon and happy upcoming President's Day weekend. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today on this Leaders of Public Policy segment of the GPPR podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. No worries. But no, first of all, just thank you for being here. We truly look forward to your thoughts on leadership based on your impressive resume. So for starters, can you just describe your early upbringing, your Georgetown Fellow experience so far, and how your upbringing has played a role into your leadership and work today? Sure. I'm originally from Huntington Woods, Michigan. It's a small suburban town outside of Detroit. I grew up with four brothers and I'm the middle child and two parents who are lawyers. So I think my my family life growing up probably helped lead me to this life of politics where there was debate at the kitchen table every day, every night for dinner, and then just arguing with my brothers. And, you know, with four brothers, you have to learn to get a word in edgewise and and (laughs) learn to be a little tougher than everyone else. And and I think that that's really helped develop me as I've grown up and pursued this field here. I'm really excited to be at Georgetown. It's been such a great experience so far. I think we're three weeks into it now, two weeks, but everyone has been so impressive, just the the best people here. And I, I've really enjoyed this opportunity and I really look forward to next week when I start my courses, my discussion course, which will be Wednesdays at four o'clock. And, and I met with my student strategy team this week who are just fantastic individuals and I can't wait to work with them on these courses. Awesome. Awesome. Being the parents of two lawyers, I mean, wow, no pressure there, but I love it. I I definitely love it for sure. So based on your bio, which is on the GU Politics Fellow website, it says that you were a former director of public affairs, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, as well as a former White House director of rapid response in the Bush administration. So for starters, can you talk about your journey in these avenues and what has been the most rewarding about these opportunities? Sure. First of all, I think anytime you get to serve in the government, serve in the White House, it's an incredibly rewarding privilege to do so. I was lucky enough at the end of the Bush administration, George W. Bush, to be able to join his White House, which is just a remarkable experience that I don't think I could ever replace. One of the most special feelings that I think anyone that's ever had the opportunity to serve in the White House will will say is 
just every day, it never gets old. You never walk onto the White House campus and don't stop and think how lucky and how amazing of a privilege this is to serve in, in the nation's highest office. Being able to come back and continue doing that at CISA has just been an incredible experience for me. CISA is actually the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which we call CISA for short, is the newest federal agency in the United States government. It was actually signed into law in November of 2018. So I got to be there when I first started. It was called the National Protection and Programs Directorate, uh, which is quite a name. Um, got to be there as we push this legislation through Congress to stand up this agency and be part of just helping it grow and, you know, now becoming a very recognizable name. It was very, everyone was very excited this week. Jeopardy used this as a clue. <laughs> you know, when you see our name on Jeopardy, it just feels like finally we've made it. <laughs> We're here. I went from no one in my family having any idea what this agency is called, and now we're on Jeopardy. So it's it's just been such an experience watching it grow, and I look forward to continue and watching this agency grow and become such a critical part of the federal government for years to come. And I know I'll always be able to look back and say, I was part of making that happen and be very proud. No, that's awesome. You know, when you make Jeopardy, that's huge. That's an awesome standard right there. And what that organization is doing today in the news is just fantastic. So awesome that you got to start at its infancy, which is which is awesome. Yeah, so as, Saturday Night Live. It means you're there. <laughs> exactly. As you kind of hear in current events today, leaders today have to be more unethically sound. So who is in Sarah Sindic's circle of trust that provide feedback, criticism, and serve as a moral compass to keep you sound and humble as a leader, director, and public servant? I would say first and foremost, my family. I have an older brother that lives out here in D.C. and is also kind of pursued the political course and uh, along with my sister-in-law out here and her brother. So it's really nice, you know, at Sunday dinners with the family to sit down and, and go through decisions and thoughts. All of my brothers along with my parents are, are very good at challenging me and making me think through ideas. I actually joke that sometimes I never know what side of the political aisle my dad or some of my brothers are on because they just like to be contrarian with me and and start an argument to see, you know, to make sure that you've thought through both sides and can really stand by your position. I think that's always been most important in our family. Like, do you feel like you are doing the moral and ethical right thing? And can you defend this position no matter what? That was really important for me in these past year where I faced some increasing challenges working on the election security issue at CISA and stopping to think, am I doing the morally right thing? And do I feel like I can back up everything I'm doing and I will defend it? And luckily I'm able to go back at that experience and look back and say, I think, I believe I did the right thing. I stand by what I did and I'm proud of the actions I took. No, that's awesome. Some of the notes, because the beauty about this podcast is not only do the audience get to, to hear it, but I get to learn so much and one thing you talked about that I circled was just family having an importance, kind of setting that solid foundation. And as far as your moral and ethical type of character, if you will. And then just what you talked about as far as election security, you know, going back to being moral and ethically sound as a leader. So I thought that was phenomenal. So just as we transition on, you know, I feel leaders are readers. So what books are you currently reading? And what are your go-to books in regards to those wanting to learn more perhaps about cybersecurity? Sure. You know, funny, it's not a typical DC answer, but I really like to mix up my books between 
biographies in fiction. I like to keep reading enjoyable for somebody that reads the news all day <laughs> and watches the news all day. Sometimes it's nice to just, you know, have, have reading be more of a fun thing. So the most recent book I just finished was Where the Crawdads Are, which is a fiction book, but it was beautiful, beautifully written and enjoy it. You know, cybersecurity, there's a lot of great books out there, but for somebody who's getting into it in a early stage kind of overview, I, I would maybe recommend The uh, Perfect Weapon by David Sanger, which is a good look at how cybersecurity has has taken over in the past couple of years. I, I read it briefly on a plane. It was great. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's good to kind of mix your books up and have a book that just kind of takes you away to another world, if you will. So I think that's awesome in regards to what you mentioned. Good yeah. Stuff. And, and I mean, of course, there's other great books that I love as well. George Bush's Decision Points, which I actually am lucky enough to be acknowledged in because I helped do the research on it after the White House. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to have to put that one in the Amazon cart for sure. No, that's 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 a winner. It can be said that, you know, we just talked about kind of President Bush. It can be said that there can be lessons learned from both good leaders and bad leaders. Obviously, without saying names, what are some specific examples from your experience of what made the good leaders good and what made the bad leaders bad? I think a good leader is always somebody that's going to uplift their team, uplift their staff and work in a very collaborative environment. A good leader wants to hear from people. They don't trust that only they have the best opinions. They want to bring people to the table. They want to help them grow as team members as well. You know, I think some of the best bosses I've worked for, you can tell that they are proud of cultivating their team and they are proud when their staff improves and learns and does better. One of the things I think a leader can do really well is to kind of set clear expectations and give constructive feedback. I, I don't I don't think it's helpful when somebody is leading a team and isn't sharing, how could I do better? I always want to know, how can I do better? If I'm not doing something right, I want I want you to tell me and I want to be a better member of the team. And, and those are the leaders that where you feel comfortable having those conversations, where you are paying attention to their work and wanting them to do better every day. A team that works well together is going to be a very successful team and it only makes you as a leader look better too. Now that is great. Clear expectations, uplifting your team, and then just, even if you think you're a great leader, you always have room to improve. Wow, I thought that that's awesome. They say adversity makes leaders better, and we kind of talked about how you, being a director in CISA, you were in it during its infancy stages. I guess my question would be is, what adversity, if any, did you have while progressing as a director in this organization? And what did these moments, alongside other instances, teach you about yourself? Yeah, I think I've had lots of challenges. I came into this job not having a, a very deep background in cybersecurity. And we always use this saying at CISA, we're building the airplane as we're flying it. And I think that's that's always been just just really working to, to learn quickly, understand the issues, understand there's there's all these fantastic men and women working at CISA who've been there for years and have deep knowledge of the agency of the department of the structure and know how all that works and trying to understand that but bring kind of a different outside fresh perspective to it has been challenging but ultimately rewarding standing up an entire agency i don't mean to say it like i did <laughs> but figuring out how to 
branches of what our role is going to be. You know, for me, it was about having the media take us seriously as a United States government federal agency next to agencies that have been there that are well established. It was certainly a challenge, but we worked hard to show our credentials, show that we were a serious agency and ready to bring serious solutions to the table. I think through our election security effort, we we really took a new model into government. It really helped grow maybe the way that we should be looking at securing all critical infrastructure going forward. Election security was this challenge where the federal government doesn't own the election systems. The They are owned by the state and locals. It is a decentralized process on purpose. But the federal government has a role to help protect these election systems from foreign actors and cyber actors. So how are we going to go about addressing that without actually owning these systems? It meant that we had to foster these this trust and partnerships, not only with our fellow partners across the federal government, but with the state and local officials, with the social media companies, with the media that was covering the elections and with the general public. And we spent the past four years building up these relationships, building up this trust. It wasn't easy, but our whole agency worked really hard at it. And by 2020, we had this incredible whole of nation effort where we were communicating with each other, sharing information, sharing intelligence to help protect the 2020 elections. And I think it's an amazing model that should be used moving forward for for many things with federal government. Just this this great public-private partnership. No, that that's awesome. I think one thing I circled and you said it towards the end was, you know, building trust. I think, you know, sometimes as an organization, as leaders, we, you know, we work at a speed of trust, if you will, and it's building that trust so you can have those credentials, as you mentioned earlier, and be able to lead effectively, whether you've been an organization, you know, 200 years or you're the newest organization out there. Having that trust, having those credentials, so that way you can bring something to the table. So I thought that was very interesting. So speaking of, you know, cybersecurity and infrastructure, you know, we're both at Georgetown, which is in the heart of D.C. and is the mecca of politics and policymaking. From your take point, um, what changes have you seen in policymaking in regards to cybersecurity and infrastructure as a whole? Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing right now is that cybersecurity is a very central point of our daily lives. It affects the way that we're talking right now. It affects everyone that's sitting on their smartphones all day. You know, even kids' toys are more and more increasingly hooked up to the internet. And, you know, we've seen it be an issue through ransomware as of late that's actually affecting the ability for schools to open or hospitals. So cybersecurity really touches all different aspects of our life. And I think in D.C., that recognition, you, I've seen that recognition grow over the past couple of years. It's It's been taken incredibly serious at Congress, the House Homeland Security Committee this week held a hearing on cybersecurity, which for the first couple of weeks of the new Biden administration to show that they're going to make that a priority is really reassuring. Cybersecurity can only benefit from from more focus and more investment. And I'm, I'm happy to see that Congress and the Biden administration are going to invest in that and spend their time on it. It's you know increasingly a critical issue uh, in our society. And I'm glad to see it taken seriously. No, I, I agree with you. Just mentioned a great point. I mean, just little things, you know, toys, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, 
how we do classes over online and Zoom. It's just so crucial. So it's, it's good to see no matter which administration, the outgoing and the incoming, they're holding it as a priority. So I think that that's awesome. You know, my, my former boss, Chris Krebs, he's a big advocate about ransomware being one of the most critical threats facing our, our nation right now because ransomware is just taking over and it's become a business for these criminals and we don't have a good solution yet as to how to how to control this situation you know like i said it's shutting down schools it's shutting down hospitals during covid and 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 it's it's just getting out of control so we talked about it administrations one type of leadership that is heavily discussed right now is presidential leadership and as the former white house director of rapid response in the bush administration what leadership traits stood out to you from President Bush during your interactions with him during your tenure? I mean, there's there's so many great things I can say about President Bush. I, I was a junior staffer in the White House, so I only had the privilege of meeting him, you know, a few times, but every time was great. I think maybe one of the most important things was he was always a good reminder that, it, as I said earlier, it's a privilege to serve in the White House. It's not a right. And he always made that very clear. He made clear how special each day was to be there and that he wasn't there to serve himself. He was there to serve the American people. The other thing I always liked about him is he he had this idea that nobody's perfect. You know, you might not always make the right decisions, but you, what you can do is make the best decisions, the things that you think are going to be best. Not everyone might agree with it, but as long as you're doing it, with that moral compass and knowing that you're doing what you think is best for the country, what you think is going to benefit everybody, those are the choices you have to make. You have to be a leader in, and make decisions and not everyone's going to love you for them. He, you know, a lot of students might not remember this, but got a lot of criticism back when I was there. He was not uh, as popular as he is today. And he always used to uh, on this on if you went on a tour with him through the oval office he had a painting of abraham lincoln in his office and he would talk about how abraham lincoln wasn't always as popular as a president either he uh his gettysburg address had been trashed in the press he wasn't always as well liked and well respected but over time history came to judge abraham lincoln's legacy and history judged that he did right by the country. And, you know, President Bush used to always say, I'm not going to worry about what my approval rating looks like right now or what they're saying about me on cable TV. History will judge me and I'll live with that judgment, but I'm not going to react right now. So, no, I think that's awesome. And it's one of the points you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that he had said it's a privilege to serve. I think for us as servant leaders and public leaders, I think that is, that is a phenomenal piece to realize that it's not just about service to ourselves, but service to the American people that uh, give us this trust in what we do. As we transition on, and we've talked about presidential leadership, it can be tied that most leadership traits can be traced to mentors who have helped you along the way. So who has been one of Sarah Sendik's biggest mentors, and how did they shape you to be who you are today? You know, I don't know that I just have a one-person answer for that. I think I've I've worked in a lot of jobs. I've had some fantastic, you know, colleagues and bosses. And I don't think it would be right to credit just one person. I've I've learned so much from from all the different people I've worked with, you know, starting in the Bush administration, just these remarkable people that taught me so much at the start of my career, you know, taught me 
to be a hard worker, but to never take anything for granted, taught me to be a stronger writer. And then, you know, I've, I've just gone on like all of my coworkers. I can't, I can't pick one single out here. And then I finally say my family has, has been such a good mentor to me too, you know, through the good times and the bad, I've always helped and, and helped look at the bright sides and, and, you know, become a better, a better leader, a better worker, and, and just always strive to do better. No, I think that's great. And I think one thing I kind of took from that is it takes a village from your family. You mentioned the, you had mentioned the Bush administration and so many colleagues and leaders that helped you along the way. Um, so as, as, a, as one of the last questions I have is it's all about a leadership philosophy. And um, I, I guess my question would be is what is Sarah Sindex leadership philosophy and what are your key takeaways for young leaders to be successful like yourself in the future? I think my key takeaways are maybe never be afraid to speak up and never be afraid to seek out an opportunity that you might not think you're qualified for. You should always try and, and you know talk to people and learn. The other thing I'd say is don't be afraid of failure. Everybody fails at some point, you know, especially in DC. The best thing I've learned from that though is I've learned so much more from my failures than I have my successes. I've been able to take those and really learn and build. And I've, you know, I've been here, I've been working in DC for 15 years now. I have, I have gotten to relive the moments that I failed previously and, and learn what I did wrong and do better this time around. I think that's probably one of the things that has helped me the most, but yeah. And then I, I think for anybody that wants to work in politics or in government, it's just be enthusiastic, be passionate. Everybody wants to work with somebody who loves what they're doing and is only striving to do better. And, and, and that's, that's helped excel me in my career. And I know that when I talk to people, I want to work with people who have the same passion for, for what we do here. No, awesome. Awesome. Be enthusiastic, be passionate. I mean, what a way to finish. Wow. Just as we close, do you have any closing remarks or anything as we uh, bring this podcast talk to a close, if you will? No, I just want to thank Georgetown University Institute of Politics for having me this semester. I hope I get to meet lots of the students here. And it's unfortunate it's a remote environment, but we still have Zoom and I'm learning to be a Zoom expert these days. So I hope to see uh, people in my discussion course or um, in office hours and you know, what, one of the things I'm most excited about here is just hearing from the students. You guys are, are all so great and, and so smart. And I, I really look forward to your feedback and your thoughts about everything facing our country right now. And I'm privileged to be here. So thank you. to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If interested to know more about Ms. Sarah Syndic, you can follow her on social media at her Twitter handle, at Sarah Syndic, or virtually sit in on one of her GU Politics discussion group sessions titled Democracy, Dissent, and Disinformation, which details can be found on the GU Politics website at politics.georgetown.edu. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and check out more from the Georgetown Public Policy Review at gppreview.com. Thanks again. And remember, humility matters, excellence matters, and great leadership matters. Take care.